Hey everybody, it's Seth Harris uh, with the Power at Work blog. Thanks so much for joining us for this very special episode. Um, today you'll be hearing my conversation with former Congressman uh, Andy Levin. And let me say one of the great things about starting this blog was it gave me the opportunity to have conversations with some old friends about some issues that we really care about, worker power, unions, the, the condition of workers in our country and how we can play whatever role we can play in helping to improve it. Um, and Andy Levin absolutely fits into that category. I've had the privilege of knowing Andy for uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 30 years. Uh, Andy was a two-term congressman from Michigan's 9th Congressional District. Uh, while he was in the House, he was the vice chair of the House Education and Labor Committee and a very important voice for workers on that committee, along with a lot of other Democrats who are very strong supporters of the labor movement and workers. Um, now he's a distinguished scholar at the Center for American Progress. He's part of uh, a legendary family in, in Michigan politics, uh, the Levin family. His father, Sandy Levin, was a longtime, very distinguished congressman, his uncle Carl was United States Senator for, for many years. We actually, he made a little joke about the idea that there was a Levin machine in Michigan. I'll let you, uh, let you listen to that. His mother, uh, Vicki, was an extremely important mental health advocate in, in the state, mental health researcher, and, uh, and a, a, a very important voice, not only in her husband's campaigns, but generally in trying to improve the lot of uh, working people in, in Michigan. Um, Equally important, Andy was a union organizer. Uh, he worked at the Service Employees Union. He, he then went on to work at the AFL-CIO. I met him when he was working at the U.S. Department of Labor as an attorney for a labor law reform commission called the Dunlop Commission. It was led by former Secretary of Labor John Dunlop. It's sort of, in retrospect, it's sort of adorable to look back on a time when, when we thought that we could bring management and labor together and come up with a solution to the logjam in labor law reform, um, uh, that uh, that effort was, they wrote a wonderful report and Andy did a great job working with them. But ultimately, as you know perfectly well, it didn't really lead anywhere and we're still stuck uh, with uh, what we might call ossified labor law uh, in America that's much to the disadvantage of workers who, who want to and deserve to organize and bargain collectively. Um, so I, I, before we, you listen to that interview with Andy, I wanted to just take a minute to talk about another very good friend of mine, a friend of long standing, uh, uh, who had a very important event uh, this week as well, and that's uh, my friend Julie Sue. Uh, Julie is currently the Deputy U.S. Secretary of Labor. President uh, Biden has nominated her to be the Secretary of Labor. She had her confirmation hearing. Uh, in the United States Senate in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee on April 20th. Um, I've had the, I don't know, fortune, is that the right word? Fortune of going through the confirmation process twice. Once I didn't make it, I didn't even get a hearing. I certainly didn't get a floor vote. I was blocked by uh, the Republican majority from being considered. Uh, but then the second time I, I went through a hearing, much like the hearing that Julie uh, had, um, not as many people showed up to my hearing as showed up to her hearing. Uh, and then I was voted on in the, uh, in the Senate when I was the Deputy Secretary, when I was nominated by and became the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, so confirmation hearings 
in reality don't matter very much. Almost nobody ever changes their vote based on what happens in a confirmation hearing. Ultimately, you need a majority of senators to vote for confirmation. Um, and uh, nobody's mind is changed by this dialogue. So it's more sort of like a show. It's a little bit of a test. You know, it's, it's a skill set that I guess you have to have if you're going to be in a cabinet level position or a senior sub-cabinet level position. You have to be able to answer questions at Congress. You have to be able to communicate the agenda very clearly. You have to be able to parse your words carefully and not say anything explosive or outrageous. So it's, I guess it's part of the job, but as I said, I don't think anybody ever changed their mind. So uh, the best piece of advice I got when I was going into my confirmation hearing uh, from a friend who had spent a lot of time working on Capitol Hill was, keep in mind that this hearing isn't about you, it's about the senators. And they don't want to hear you talk, they want to do the talking. And so try to give them as much space to do that as possible. That was a terrific piece of advice because more, what happens more than anything else is the senators give speeches, they ask questions that really are speeches, they're not really listening for your answers. Most of them, uh, maybe the friendly senators are listening. They're trying to help you along and they're trying to be as supportive as they possibly can. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the merits of what you say. And in, in a sense, it's not even really about the merits of the candidate. And, you know, and if, 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 if this were a decision on the merits of who should be the Secretary of Labor, absolutely no question, Julie Sue would be confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate. She is one of the best qualified candidates for Secretary of Labor in my time working with Secretaries of Labor. I've worked with numerous Secretaries of Labor going back to the early 1990s. I worked with Bob Reich and Alexis Herman. I worked with Tom Perez and Hilda Solis and Marty Walsh. And, and you know, Julie is a terrific candidate. She's, as I said in the, the, the New Republic this week, she's a genuine expert on the substance of doing this job. She's an expert on labor standards. She's an expert on un, unemployment insurance, on workforce development, on safety and health. She's lived this. And the reason that she's an expert in those things is because she ran the second largest labor department in the United States, the California, they don't call it a la the labor department, but that's essentially what it is. Second largest after the U.S. Department of Labor. But equally important, for the last two years, she's been in the U.S. Department of Labor as the deputy. She knows the place inside and out. She knows the policy. She's a very effective advocate for the Labor Department's role in a lot of these policy issues. I've worked with her when I was in the White House. I worked very closely with her. She's just She's terrific. And uh, not just on paper, but in reality, in the real world, Julie Sue is an outstanding candidate for Secretary of Labor. And I don't want to shock any of you by saying this. So sit down and hold on to something because I'm going to tell you something that I know is going to be appalling to you. Sometimes in Washington, decisions are not made on the merits. I'll give you a chance to recover. You okay? Okay. Sometimes decisions are made based on the politics. Now, the Republicans have made, the Republicans in the Senate have made the decision, perhaps because Julie is such a fantastic candidate and will be immensely effective on behalf of workers and the mission of the Labor Department, that they're all going to vote no. And we shouldn't let them off the hook for that. They're voting against an extremely well-qualified candidate. There's no scandals. There's no grotesque mismanagement of public monies. There's no beating up on staff. There, none of that. There's no excuse like that for voting no. 
It's all because Julie cares about workers, knows about worker rights, knows about how to vindicate worker rights, and because she's affiliated with the most pro-union president in history. And so they're all going to vote no. And let me just say, we should never pretend that that's the right thing to do or that that means it's all about the Democrats. It's not. Those votes are wrong votes, unjustifiable wrong votes. But the decision ultimately is going to come down to a very small number of Democrats um, who have not yet said how they're going to vote. And um, it's essentially three Democrats uh, who are currently up for re-election in 2024. One is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Another is Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. She's an independent, not a Democrat. And then Senator John Tester of Montana. It's possible that Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona also gets involved in this. He has, he in the past voted against a... Uh, a Democratic nominee for a very important Labor Department position. Another friend of mine named Dave Weil, who was the nominee for the Wage and Hour Administration. Senator Kelly voted against him and defeat, helped to defeat David's very w appropriate and well-qualified nomination. Um, so it's really going to come down to those three senators. Now, though none of those three senators don't like Julie Sue, strongly disagree with the president's labor agenda. They may have a disagreement here or there, but but what they are most focused on, I suspect, and let me just say, they're not calling me up and asking for advice. They're not. Trust me. Uh, but what they are looking at is the success that the business community may or may not have in portraying Julie as a crazy left-wing lunatic activist and then can they associate those three senators with Julie and therefore threaten their re-election efforts? Because for all three of them, it's going to be a tough re-election. Probably most for Senator Manchin, maybe Senator Sinema as well. I think probably of those three, least for Senator Tester. But it's going to be tough. You know, Montana is not, a, not an easy state for a Democrat to win in. And so the business community is running advertisements about how horrible Julie Sue is. They have a website. They have a Twitter account. They're attacking her. Um, uh, and they're really doing that based on two issues. One is so-called joint employment. And that is really about whether or not a second employer, usually a larger employer that is directly related to a first employer like a franchisor, or someone, uh, you know, a, a company that uh, gets uh, leases employees from another uh, employer is joint employment says that both of those employers are responsible for assuring compliance with labor and employment laws. And if there's a violation, they're both responsible for it. And also, if there's an organizing effort and the workers are trying to organize and there are unfair labor practices committed, both of the employers are responsible for those violations. This was a big effort in the Fight for 15 when Fight for 15 was organizing among fast food workers. The goal was to get McDonald's and some of the other larger franchisors involved in the process so that there could be a broader success and they had deeper pockets and there was a, a strategic effort to get them involved because that made it more likely you'd organize more workers. The second issue is the question of who is an employee and who's an independent contractor. If you're an employee, you're covered by labor and employment laws. Your, your tax taxes are paid at least in part by your employer. If you're an independent contractor, you're all on your own for your taxes. And um, 
almost all, essentially all labor and employment laws don't apply to you. You're not protected by them. You can't organize a union. You don't get the minimum wage necessarily. You don't get overtime protections. You don't get anti-discrimination protections. Now, there's nothing that Julie has done. There's nothing that Deputy, Deputy Secretary Sue has done during her time at the Labor Department that has interfered on those issues, that has intervened on those issues. The Labor Department has an interpretive regulation that will probably be coming out fairly soon about the definition of employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the minimum wage and overtime law. But that's not, I mean, Julie doesn't own that process. And also, it's going to be a very moderate regulation. They're not, it's not a revolutionary, scary, unbelievable thing that's going to shut down tens of thousands of businesses across the country. Although to hear the business community talk about it, that's what you would think. Um, it's really about Julie's role in California when she was the labor secretary there. And the legislature passed a bill called AB5, Assembly Bill 5, which essentially changed the definition of employee to a very, very, very broad definition of employee. It's called the ABC test for the cognoscenti who I know look at this blog. It's called the ABC test. It's, it's very difficult for workers to be excluded from the definition of employee unless they're genuinely independent businesses. You know, and Julie administered that. She was involved in the debate. She was a supporter of AB5. And then there was Proposition 22, which was put forward by the online platform companies and uh, that carved them out of AB5. And let me say there were lots and lots of carve-outs from AB5. But Julie was an opponent of Proposition uh, 22, as were many, many, many worker advocates, as was Governor Newsom. And uh, that's what they're focusing on. They're trying to make an example of Julie on those issues. And they're trying to put pressure on those three senators to get them to vote no on those issues and on just generally that Julie, I don't know, is a, is a female Vladimir Lenin or Che Guevara. I don't know what it is. And uh, I'm, the, I'm sure the fact that she's a woman of color is a part of the quiet part of the advocacy here. Uh, her pictures are featured in some of the advertising, as you might imagine. Um, but that's really what this is about. Now, um, I, I don't really want to guess. I don't understand the politics of Arizona, West Virginia, Montana well enough to know how those senators are, are going to senators are going to assess how things are going to come out. Um, my fervent hope is that they will see that Julie is an exquisitely qualified candidate, will be an excellent leader, really knows what she's doing, that she will be in dialogue with them and other members of the Senate about policy that she is right in the mainstream of the Biden administration on policy, um, that she is trying to carry out the president's agenda, carry out, uh, you know, live up to the mission of the Labor Department and make sure that everybody in the Labor Department is doing that which Congress has directed them to do, which is to enforce the laws that they've been asked to administer, to give out the grants that they've been asked to give out, uh, and to do it in a responsible way. She is a responsible, high-quality a high virtue, high ethics public servant, and I sincerely hope that they will vote yes uh, in support of uh, Julie Sue's confirmation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's not just that I want my friends to succeed, it's that I want workers to have better lives, and I think having Julie Sue at the U.S. Department of Labor will help to uh, affect that. So, 
that's my rant of the day. Uh, let me turn you over to my discussion with uh, the great Andy Levin from the state of Michigan. Uh, see you briefly after the interview. Thanks. Thanks a lot for being here. I really, I really am grateful. Uh, I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time. It's sort of like a continuation of a three-decade-long conversation. So here's, I, let me start with this. Um, without going through the entire biography, I'm just, I'm, I've never asked you this before, but when you're Sandy and Vicky Levin's son, which you are, um, is it just inevitable? that you're gonna end up being an advocate and an activist and in politics and in policy. So were there, like, was, was it just like a straight path or were there, were there forks in the road where you were making choices along the way to get to end up where you are right now? Well, first of all, Seth, it's so great to see you. And I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. Great, really. thanks. Um, you know, my big sister is a lawyer at the U.S. Department of Labor in the solicitor's office. She, the health and safety, you know, uh, agency is her. OSHA is her client, and my little little sister uh, is uh, works on policy. I guess she's technically in the private sector, but she helps do evaluations of government policy programs. And my baby brother, you know. Is, <laughs> <laughs> he really represents all the, the he works for all the child care and, and um, you know, early learning groups in Vermont, in Vermont, in the state capital. So we, you know, we all ended up like this. I would say if you really want to know my personal path, I mean, being the oldest son and my dad having been, you know, a state senator and then the two time gubernatorial candidate in Michigan and then at the USAID and in, in Congress, I the path I didn't take really for most of my life was the idea of going into politics, narrowly yeah. running for office. And, you know, I was a pretty radical kid and I, I, in particular, I didn't like two things about politics. I still don't like them. <laughs> and that is the, the kind of compromise. I'm compromised. You know, if you want to really fight for power, you got to, it's there's a lot of compromising right but the way in which i saw a lot of people in politics compromising in the way of like like what do these people really stand for you know and secondly the money in politics yeah and so you know i went off and became a union organizer and i as you know i lived my life in the labor movement and then i you know, organizing for SCIU and then working in the UAW Health Safety Department, then meeting you in the Clinton administration when I was a staff attorney for the, the his labor law reform commission. So I, you know, and, and then after that at the AFL-CIO, so I very happily did that. And later in life, I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go into government in the, in the state and then, and then in Congress. And it was great, actually. But I think- So, what, so but I, let me, so I'm curious about that turn because- you know, this is I, this is a wrestling match I had with my parents because my parents were sort of movement lefties mm. back to the old days. Actually, my family going back to the old country. I mean, we're, we're really movement mm. left, really didn't like partisan politics. My parents were supportive of my involvement in, you know, working on campaigns and supporting people. And but but it wasn't for them. So what what? What was the turn that allowed you to say, 
you know, I've been fighting for change in all these different ways, but I think politics might be the way to do it now. Well, so first of all, I have to say that the way my dad did politics and, and my uncle Carl, you know, for one thing, people say, oh, the Levens of Michigan and all this, but they are the opposite of a machine. You know, they, <laughs> they put less than zero pressure on any of us to, you know, go into politics. It was, there was no, you know, kind of preparing people or anything. Um, and also, even though I disagree, you know, we would disagree about issues there was, I mean, their in, their integrity was just simply never a question. I mean, they were, it was almost a joke. They were so boring. You know, they never, <laughs> they never did anything wrong. I mean, like, hey, let's have a glass of wine. You know, come on, it's Shabbat. I mean, you know, they... <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were is that it's just out of curiosity is that what accounts for a scandal in the levin family is having a glass <laughs> of shabbat wine a little I thing? You know, there, yeah there wasn't a lot of scandal but so um i think that they really fostered i mean my siblings and i i remember when you know like my dad he you know he's 91 he was a different generation when the terrible supreme court decisions came out about you know gay and lesbian rights it wasn't even you know um, GLBT, right, I lost, right. there was, you know, I mean, it, we cried, you know, we, we said, you know, you don't understand how terrible this is or, you know, about Central America, you know, I felt like, you know, he wasn't um, adequate, but this is the thing that this kind of conversations we had, it was the, the stuff of our lives. And, he, you know, we all kind of depended on, I mean, that was just, the oxygen we breathed yeah so yeah. really for me the turning to paul i'll tell you really what happened seth is i got cancer at a very young age yeah i remember i'm a two-time cancer survivor and um you, we knew each other well i was 39 um i you know i was a, I had a, like an amazing job i was the youngest senior manager at the aflcio i could have aspired to be the chief of staff at the aflcio right which to a weirdo like me or you, it, that's like one of the most- That's a huge, that's a huge deal. That's a huge, huge deal. Absolutely. Huge deal. And one of the most amazing jobs in Washington, right? But I, what, what happened, like I got cancer, I was 39, I had three kids, five and under in, in the house. And later we had a fourth kid, but, and I, I'm like, I'm not checking out, but do you really have control over that? You know, no. Yeah. But so once I found out, that I was super lucky and it was not only treatable, but curable. Um, then it's like, well, you just found out you might, none of us know how long, you know, you might be here for a minute. So what the hell should you do? You know, what is your best contribution? And what I realized, Seth, is that, and it wasn't about running for office narrowly at first. It was I, being a staff guy at the AFLCO was not my best contribution, that I needed to have some kind of more public leadership, that I felt like that was what I had to offer. And so I thought about going into running for office in, in suburban Maryland. And actually, Jamie Raskin ended up following the path I decided not to, which is we love, you know, <laughs> he's such a great friend. But then um, I said, you know, maybe I should be do more kind of political leadership in the labor movement. But, you know, I mm -hmm. left my union so long ago to go to the AFL-CL for so many years. That didn't make sense. So, and finally I said, look, 
I don't really like DC that much. I hate the weather. I root for the Red Wings and the Lions and the Tigers, no matter how bad they are, you know. And and you know, the all the tough issues of Michigan, way tougher on you know, reproductive rights and sensible gun reform and immigrant rights and all that. Tough luck for you. That's who you are. That's where you're from. And you know, so I I went home and I so, oh, what a great decision. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, it worked out. It worked out unbelievably well, I think. Um, and I want to I, I want to talk about some Michigan issues with you yeah. because you're you're so deeply knowledgeable about the state. And that state is such an important I don't know if it's a bellwether anymore, but it, it's definitely not locked in for anybody. And I'll, I'll ask you about that. But I want to take you back to your days as an organizer, because you talked about having a public voice and having a public leadership role. But what was the experience like being an organizer? You're an organizer, right, for SEIU? Yes. What, what were, who were some of the people that you were organizing? And what were some of those experiences like? Well, actually, that's an amazing thing that you mentioned because, you know, these days, the young people who are kind of like me when I was coming out of college or whatever, they don't want to become a staff organizer in general. They, they go and they salt which right. you know, a lot of your viewers, unlike most, or would know. But anyway, it's when you go to work someplace to do the job, do the job well, but also intend on organizing a union there. And the reason I mention that is that they they say, well, I don't want to go organize other people. I'll, I have to be a rank-and-file worker to organize. And I respect that so much, Seth, but what I tell them is, I think you don't understand what being a union organizer is. If you think, if you think you're going to go be a union organizer on staff, right? And that you're the man, you know, I'm like very important. And I'm, I, it's true that like I help nursing home workers organize mostly. It's true that maybe without me, they wouldn't have done it. You know, that the organizer plays a crucial role, but you are in the background. You are not about your leadership. If you don't successfully develop amazing leadership amongst these workers who are going to do things that are so brave. They're putting their job on the line and they're not from some privileged background where they're like, oh, if I get fired, you know, whatever, somebody's going to take care of me. I mean, these were people with kids, uh, people who had no wealth in their family, you know, a nursing home worker, and they did such great organizing and they and they they led each other and they created something i mean that's why i became a union organizer you know it was 1983 when i graduated from college i decided that it, reagan was president i decided the world needed so much change and the working people of this country were going to have to lead it so i could be a community organizer or a union organizer and actually, Heather Booth offered me a job to create the Citizen Action Chapter of Jacksonville, Florida. I don't know if that chapter was ever created or not, but that was my one offer. And the other offer was with SCIU to help Beverly nursing home workers organize in Michigan. And I decided to do the union thing, Seth, because I thought like, wow, this is amazing. What a union is an organization that workers create, and then they they pay for it themselves, and they control yeah. it themselves. Yeah. Even now, that is unique. Yeah, it's really it, it's it's a self-sustaining, democratic, worker-led yeah. effort, which is lost, I think, on a lot of folks. And thank you so much for saying 
how courageous it is when workers organize. Uh, you know, people don't really appreciate what that looks like. You know, the, the, the discourse around, one of the reasons we started this blog is because the discourse around workers in unions is so much about strikes and the leadership and corruption and politics. And it's not about these, you know, nursing home workers who are probably making minimum wage or a little bit above. They're working their hearts out. They're suffering back injuries and arm injuries and all other kinds of musculoskeletal injuries and being exposed to all kinds of illnesses to take care of our parents. And they're together with their co they're turning and looking at their coworkers and saying, you know what, we got to change this. They're not going to change it. We've got to change it. And they're putting their, their livelihoods, which they, they're living paycheck to paycheck and probably in a, a good bit of debt in order to keep up. And, and they're putting their, their livelihood on the line in order to improve the qualities of their lives. That is courage, man. I really appreciate uh, your saying that. And, um, can only say you can't shout out Heather Booth enough for me. I, Heather Booth is fantastic. <laughs> right, let me tell you another name. Let me tell you another name that yeah. nobody never heard of. Nobody ever heard of. Just because you're making me think of this. My first campaign that you know we won, Shorehaven Manor uh, in Grand Haven, Michigan, the very mm -hmm. first nursing home that I I organized. Right, as your question, <laughs> they the workers organized with a little help from me. Right, Irene Podine. She was the leader there no question it wasn't no and you know any sociologists would go in there and they would if they studied it they would say well i you know she's the leader she had no i i think she graduated high school i don't know for sure she lived in a little house in grand haven and you know i had just gone to williams college so you know supposedly this like fancy college right and the, she gave i mean what i concluded was that irene podine was smarter than the vast majority of people I went to that fancy college with. She didn't get close to any college. She was smarter and and more courageous, and people followed her, uh, you know, because she had integrity and she had wisdom. And, uh, you know, I met so many amazing American people uh, like I, people like Irene, whose family had been here for generations, people who were immigrants themselves and everything in between, you yeah. know, uh, who 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 organized there. And you know what else? They weren't mostly doing it for themselves. Right. The, you know, what right. they, they were like, the supplies are terrible. They would say, like, if you take one of our washcloths or our towels, you can go like this and break it in half because they just launder them, launder them, launder them till they're dust. And they're, they're not, they're no good. When we filed for an election that first time, um, immediately the company got all new supplies. And the chemo, like, here's the little thing the organizer helps with, right? You won, you did that. Right. You did that workers. I didn't do it. The, you know, you did it. So I made, I, I went and bought a pack of camels. I never smoked and I can't draw for shit. So excuse my <laughs> French. So I, I cut out the camel and I made a little picture of a, a camel. And then I made a picture of like a speedy delivery truck. And it was before the union, you know, it said Shorehaven, 2000 miles, the supplies were on the back of the camel. 
And after the union, the speedy delivery truck was like overnighting the towels and the sheets. And the... <laughs> anyway. You started out building memes, even back then. Like that would have been an Instagram meme today. Right. I guess so. Uh, I no, guess that's so. That's great. Yeah. All right. Let me, I want to transition here. I want to talk about, I want to talk about your home state a little yes. bit because, because uh, unions are, I think it's fair to say unions are really at the heart of the economic history, the political history, the human rights history of the state of Michigan. And you were, you grew, not only did you grow up in the midst of it and your, your, your family was in, in the midst of it and you worked in the midst of it, but um, you actually were elected as part of it. I mean, you had a lot of support from the labor movement when you ran both times. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about three important recent developments in in your home state and get your get your reactions to them because I think that they're pretty important. The first so first Michigan issue, um, the, your state legislature and Governor Whitmer have repealed your state's right to work law. Yes. What do you think that means for the labor movement in Michigan? Well, it's huge, and it means a lot for the whole working class of this country. I mean, we, we could clearly spend, and maybe you have another you know, episode, we could spend the whole time talking about what I call right to freeload, right? That's and, what I, I, it's funny, that was the headline, I wrote an article for the blog about it, and that's exactly what I called it, the right well, to Well, you know, yeah. one of the first things to say about it is that of all, if you take all the public policy disputes, you know, abortion right you know the pro-choice versus pro-life or reproductive rights right it's really the only one i know of where one side created the term and everybody uses it right i mean why on earth are we willing to even say it has nothing to do with anybody's right to work but anyway it's it's really significant for michigan first of all it's a symbol of this term right michigan for 40 years republicans have controlled um, either one or both houses of the legislature and or the governor's office, mostly all of it, all that time, mostly all of it or most of it. And um, they passed this right to freeload bill a decade ago in the middle of the night. The, the Republican governor who was elected in 2010, Rick Snyder, said it's not on my agenda. And then he flipped uh, and signed the thing and went along with it. And it just undermines the purpose of right to freeload is to divide workers and undermine the ability of them to have their own independent organizations. And so the fact that it's one of the very early things accomplished by this new democratic legislature, House and Senate and Governor Whitmer, and the fact that they were able to accomplish it, Seth, despite their very narrow majorities, right, is really, important. And I think it's a signal to other states that let's get the ball rolling on repealing, uh, you know, these right to freeload laws that the majority of states have. And so are, do you think that's going to happen? Do you think we're going to see some other states follow Michigan's lead? Well, you know, perhaps the most interesting and, you know, we're all about the Midwest here and the Great Lakes states, you know, um, you know, Wisconsin obviously just elected a new uh, a member of their state Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will look at the gerrymandering issues there. And if they can un-gerrymander that state, which is as horribly gerrymandered as Michigan was before we passed a referendum, the whole reason that we have this 
trifecta is that in 2018, we passed the voters, not politicians referendum that ended uh, partisan gerrymandering. It wasn't so great for me personally in terms <laughs> of the congressional district. <laughs> but oh, well, you know, it was really important that the legislature just became a fair playing field and Democrats won majority a majority in both uh, both chambers. So, uh, you know, I think so. But it's also just important for Michigan. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, if employers and unions are again free to negotiate that everybody covered by a contract, they don't have to join the union. The Supreme Court decided nobody right. made to do that in the 40s. All the articles are wrong about so much of this, right? And and no, they don't have to pay for the political act activity of the union. Right. It was in right. the 70s that the, the Supreme Court decided yeah. that. Yeah. They just they just have to pay their fair share of administering the contract that benefits them equally. So I think that will you know have an impact on making uh, labor organizations healthier in the state and having less divisiveness amongst workers, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at I don't think it's going to be explosive growth, but I'm I'm looking at some meaningful growth in Michigan. There was already been last year there was meaningful growth yeah. in Michigan even before the repeal. So I think that that's going to continue, uh, particularly with the UAW being more engaged and organizing. So let me I want to turn to the UAW. Yes. Uh a union you know very, very well, hugely important in Michigan, but in a lot of other states. Uh, as well. The UAW is organizing on the Northeastern campus right now. They're organizing well, the graduate students. Um, so they just had an election. And President Ray Curry was very narrowly defeated by new president Sean Fain, first ever direct election in the UAW rather than a uh, convention or executive board election. Um, and that election upset, and I think it's fair to call it an, an upset. Absolutely. Uh, it happened just as the UAW was about to enter its negotiations with the big three. And while the UAW is trying to navigate the growth of the electric vehicle and battery industries and what will be, I think, the inevitable, not decline, but shrinkage of the internal combustion engine industry, help us put this all together. How does it all fit together? And where do we think this is going to end up? Where do we think the UAW is going to end up in all this? Right. Well, so first of all, the, the one, let's just talk about the challenge of the, of, of the EVs. I drive a Chevy Bolt. I'm all the way in. I have a Chevy Volt before that. We're, you know, EVs are amazing and we have to electrify transportation more, even more broadly than cars to save life on earth as we know on this planet. So that is happening. It has to happen. And I so appreciate President Biden's leadership on this and so forth. But even if this was Sweden, Seth, this would be difficult for the auto workers union because it takes a lot, you know, they have electric vehicles have like 40% less parts. Right, right, and right. I don't so, think people really appreciate what that transition from an internal, you know, most of us never look under the hood of our car anymore. When you and I were growing up, you, you changed your oil, dude. Your oil, or you had to just at least check the oil or check the water. Put stick in the carburetor. With oh, yeah, it's like, oh boy, we sound like a couple of old men sitting on a park bench, grousing at the pigeons. But the uh, no one pops their hood anymore, so they don't really get a sense. The internal combustion engine, 
is very, very, very complicated. Electric vehicles and their batteries are also complicated, but they're much sort of more simple in the design. There's not as many moving parts. It's not as many components. So that means you don't need as many people to pull it together, seems to me. Maybe right. I'm wrong about that. What's no, no, the... that's just, that's well known. It's data. I mean, if you're in Detroit, you know, we talk about that all the time and it's, you know, a quantified thing. So, um, so that would be hard. And then yet, on you know, the fact way this isn't Sweden, right? So 70% of the workforce is not unionized. And, uh, you know, even in the auto industry, uh, the UAW has lost significant amount of leverage, both because the part, you know, it used to be parts were part of the big three. Right. Ofi, right. you know, was a division of GM. Mopar was part of Chrysler. You know, now they've sp uh, spun off most of the parts and they, they just get them from all these companies. Some are unionized, but a lot are not. And then because, as you say, the EV is so different, you've got this the batteries, the cells, the assembly of the cells into the battery packs and so forth. And that all has to be unionized. And essentially what happened in the UAW is that Sean Fain ran on having a much more militant uh, approach towards bargaining. No, you know, two tiers, no. Long time temp workers, no. And it's not about blaming the past, you know, you know, the, the the folks over there. I actually was in DC this week. I flew both ways as it happens with Ray Curry. I mean, wonderful guy. No kidding. Yeah. Guy. But you know, it's I've just lost an election, you know. So hey, it happens. And I wait, is there a spot? Are you telling me there's a special airplane for people who recently lost elections? Is that <laughs> it's called Delta? What I, did I just learn that? I'm not sure. Did I <laughs> it's called Delta? So um <clears throat> And by the way, we got to help those flight attendants win yes. an election in Delta. We had Sarah. We had Sarah Nelson on an earlier blogcast, and we yeah. talked a little bit about her. There's a there's a a three union combined organizing drive going on at Delta. Man, they've been trying to beat Delta for such a long time, and it's yeah. really been incredible. Anyway, I'm sorry, I don't want to take you away from you. Well, so yeah, so in any event, I think what you know, and and then in the broader context, look you know, the Teamsters aren't from Michigan, like the UAW is based here, but actually, you know, Jimmy Hoffa was from here, the, the great leader of in the fifties and who was, you know, last seen in a restaurant about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting actually. And then his son was the president until recently. And then when Jimmy, you know, Jim Hoffa, the son retired last year and he backed a slate that, really didn't that lost the election and sean o'brien the local president from boston won right. he ran on having a much more militant uh approach towards bargaining with the U ups where the contract expires on july 31st right and so and then if you throw in the situation of oh, you know 300 starbucks stores having been organized and they're nowhere near a first contract and then the other new organizing that hap that's happening Seth, we are in a moment for the labor movement that we really haven't seen in a long time where the failure in administration after administration to achieve fundamental labor law reform means that somehow the working folks of this country are going you know i think really it's a little bit back to the future if we get labor law reform it's because as in the early 30s 
workers are just going to take it upon themselves to demand justice, whether they're in a very mature labor situation like UPS or the big three, or they're young baristas organizing and realizing, whoa, in this country, you don't actually have a right to get a contract under current labor law. So there's going to have to be a lot of turmoil, I think. And I'm, you know, I'm very interested to see it. But buckle up for really intense bargaining uh, with the auto companies because uh, so that's play, 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 play that. Uh, so so uh, uh, your point about Sean O'Brien and Sean Fain both making commitments in order to get elected, and also because I think they both clearly, sincerely believe that that there should be no concession bargaining. They should uh, claw back all the concessions from the past. There should not be multiple tiers. There are different issues for the UAW with the big three than uh, Teamsters with the UPS. There are, there are very big safety and health issues at, at UPS uh, that they're going to be negotiating over. But coming in more militant is a starting place. You know, to some extent, the UAW needs to be able to be successful at these battery plants, these joint ventures where the big three are part of the company. They're not all of the company and you have some foreign investors who are involved. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure, you know, to me, militancy is a tactic. It's, you know, it's a philosophy, but it's also a tactic that you use if it's going to produce the desired outcome. Is that what's going to happen? Is, is Sean Fain pounding the table going to say going to and and taking a firm position does that mean the UAW is going to end up winning or does it mean that we're that 2023 is going to be as you know uh, sort of a a forge a big conflict a lot of turmoil and then we don't really know how it's going to come out well I certainly don't know how it's going to come out but you know it goes back to kind of what we started the discussion with which is what is a union really and what I think, Sean, and and if you if you want to kind of keep these things, keep uh, these different things in the discussion in a sort of a complicated way, you remember the 1997 Teamster strike at UPS. I would say it was the most effective strike of my adult life on a national mm -hmm. scale in this country. And why? Because every bakery, every machine shop, every restaurant, every flower shop has a, a UPS driver who comes in, same person. It's a route. They have a relationship with them. And it was the summer, they're in their shorts, you know, and they're in the heat of the summer. And the American people, the, the UPS drivers were in incredible solidarity. And the American people said, well, we know which side we're on. We're on, I'm on Fred's side who comes in right. here Monday to Friday. You know, and that was so what Sean Fain is really pledged to do or what he needs to do if he's going to be successful. But I think this is his strategy is to engage the membership in the big three on a level that has not happened in a long time and in bargaining, in preparing for bargaining. Um, and that's what's happening at UPS right now. I mean, the Teamsters are having rallies, beginning to have rallies and events around uh, the country. And I'm, you know, trying to support them by, I can't talk directly to my former colleagues because there's a one year like contact ban, but I'm free to work on things. And, um, you know, other people can talk to them directly, right? And, and 
I think that what, what needs to happen in the big three bargaining is what needs to happen in UPS as what needs to happen um, on whether there can be progress with a, any kind of first contract at Starbucks, which is such a tremendous solidarity of workers and an engagement that they're leading their own fight and then them building support in the broader community uh, from organizations, clergy, um, you know, elected officials, everybody. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen with big three bargaining, but I think the new uh, folks who in charge of the UAW will be successful to the extent that they really get the the members in a Kokomo plant, you know, uh, in Chrysler, in a Chicago plant, in Ford, you know, all three companies, workers throughout the country in those plants really say that they can say what their bargaining priorities are and that they say, I decided. I was in the session where we decided that, you know, whatever it is, no more, you know, temps can't be on for more than 90 days, whatever their demands are, right? Right. There's broad, you know, if there's broad buy-in and activism, I think they have a chance of, and they're not going to win everything by any means, but they, you know, um, I mean, Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters has gone out to the extent to say, we have to win a contract that makes Amazon workers want to run to join the Teamsters. Yeah, yeah, he's very focused. He's you know, very focused yeah. on on Amazon, and uh, yeah, and and I. That's another piece that I wrote for the blog, to, basically talking about how the contracts that are under negotiation in 2023, and you listed some of them, but there are a lot more are going to play a huge role in organizing going forward. Starbucks may be the premier among them. If they can get a contract of some kind, boy, that's going to send an immensely powerful signal. But it's going to be a major fight to get anything out of Howard Schultz and the folks at Starbucks. Let me. I want to pivot. Uh, because I, I'm afraid we're going to be in hour nine of this and we won't have gotten through even my very short notes. Um, uh, so third Michigan issue. In the 2022 election, uh, three Michigan Democratic women running statewide absolutely kicked the hell out of their opposition. I mean, I mean, you know the numbers as well as I do. Governor Whitmer wins by 10 points. Attorney General Nessel wins by nine points. Secretary of State Benson wins by 14 points. Joe Biden won the state in 2020 by three points. And remember, and you know this, I mean, my guess is you wake up screaming, thinking about this sometimes. Donald Trump won the state in 2016. Now he just barely squeaked yeah. by. I think it was 0.3, something in that vicinity, 0.3%. So you... I don't know if people know this about you, but you represented the the quintessential, the paradigmatic, if I can use big polysyllabic words, the big paradigmatic swing county of swing counties in Michigan, right? You were the congressman from Macomb County, birthplace of the Reagan Democrat, meaning the white working class, middle class voters who opened their eyes to the Republican Party beginning in 1980 and have sort of swung a little bit back and forth. Uh, you know, they're now, I think they talk about them now not as Reagan Democrats, but as Obama Trump voters. Um, and so you've lived that. So uh, let me ask this uh, in the politest, most open-ended way possible. What the hell is going on in Michigan? What is going on politically in Michigan? 
Well, so, you know, the, the red trending areas have continued to trend red. So, for example, the first district, which is the whole Upper Peninsula and the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, that Bart Stupak, you would remember. Yeah, sure. Democrat represented. But he was that kind of, you know, NRA member, not really pro-choice kind of Democrat right. that, you know, kind of worked there. He actually, um, didn't he drive, wasn't he the leader in the amendment uh, that took uh, abortion funding out of the Affir uh, Affordable Care Act? Do I have that history right? Um, well, yeah, but he ended up having to vote overall for the, the Affordable Care Act, and then he retired. I mean, he, yeah, right. you know, it didn't seem like it could work for him politically anymore. But so basically, the, 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 simple the simplest answer is um that the politics of abortion uh were an overwhelming factor uh in michigan and elsewhere and it continues to be um you know the the decision uh to overturn roe v wade has um only and and it's it wasn't just a one-time thing because the republicans can't help themselves but to want to ban uh, women's access to reproductive care earlier and earlier before they even know someone even knows they're pregnant. Right. And, on, you know, we don't want to get into all that. So that was one major factor. But the other major factor is that, um, you know, Donald Trump is a, was a certain phenomenon. He's like a, uh, you know, TV star or whatever. And he, so this really rich guy and a certain kind of American you know, shyster, but anyway, he was, and, but then the GOP has, once they went completely in his thrall and the base voters, you know, were completely captured by that, um, they have put forward candidates who are so extreme and have no qualifications. I mean, not only did a woman uh, run against Jocelyn Benson for Secretary of State, who had no qualifications for the job, but she talked about uh, Satan, you know, controlling things, just nutty stuff. And then they elected her. She's the chair of the state Republican Party right now. Mm. Uh, so the second factor besides the politics of abortion is just that the Republic, the Republican Party really hasn't had its reckoning with the authoritarianism and the anti-democratic nature of Donald Trump. And we need two parties or more in this country. We need honest debate. I need to have Republicans that I can say, you know, I totally disagree with you. And within the realm of democracy, we could disagree, have an election, they win more, we win more, whatever. But the Republican Party is sort of still off the reservation of democracy altogether. And that aspect hurt. But the third thing is, I could tell you about Macomb, let's use Macomb County specifically. Yes, it's where the term Reagan Democrat was coined, but the working class is so much more diverse than people think. And yes, it was the symbol of kind of the white working class. Even Macomb County has gotten much more diverse. The working class is, there's a lot, you know, there've always been a lot of women workers, but women are, you know, now uh, approaching half of of all of the workers in the working class. And, uh, the, you know, you have uh, 
more immigrants, more people of color. And, you know, the, the Arab American population of Macomb County has grown tremendously. Mm. African-American population where there was a complete race barrier along eight mile almost. That's why, you know, Eminem's song and movie Eight Mile was really about that race barrier and how he was like a white rapper hanging out with people in Detroit. But he grew up north of Eight Mile, you know, and so it's getting more diverse. And, you know, I think the hope for both democracy and a just economy in this country, Seth, really depends on our ability to, to create a, a movement where working class people can all stick together despite the way they try to divide us. And I think what happened in Michigan and what happened in Macomb County in, in 2022 uh, was a, a real hopeful sign that that is possible in this country. And yeah, a lot of work point. to make it, you know, make it stick, but it's, it's, it's really possible. And then we could have another era like the 30s or the 60s where we make sustained progress on building up um, you know, an economy that can work for everybody in this country. Boy, that's a that I, that in, in an era where the the news seems like it's endlessly negative and and authoritarian authoritarianism really feels like it's on the rise in corporatism, not just authoritarianism, yeah. but corporatism, which intriguingly are sometimes in conflict with one another because the authoritarians aren't all about making profit. The corporatists really are. Uh, but those feel like they're rising. But at the same time, you do get this feeling that there is this rising working class knowledge of what is necessary to secure their place in our society. I, I hope I certainly hope that's true. I'm going to ask you about that. I'm going to close out with that that question. But I, I want to turn to one more policy issue, uh, not uh, Michigan specific, but national. So. Um, you were not just a co-sponsor of the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, but you were really one of the key legislative managers. Um, folks don't know this, but I know this, that you were really involved in adding amendments to the bill when it was in committee. You were managing amendments in the committee. You were working really closely with Chairman Scott, who is, I believe, the principal sponsor of the bill and is the principal sponsor of it again. What are so? so I, I'm not going to ask you what are the prospects of the PRO Act because with your close friend Virginia Fox chairing the House Education and Not Labor Committee now, um, it's impossible to believe that we're going to get a PRO Act anytime in the next two years. But let's let's posit that the Democrats get back control of the House and the Senate, and they keep the Senate, and President Biden is reelected which I believe is what's going to happen. Does the PRO Act depend entirely on getting rid of the filibuster? Is that really all it comes down to, or is something more required? Well, um, I do think getting rid of, the, rid of the filibuster is important for the health of American democracy uh, to pass the PRO Act and, and many other things, um, including sensible gun reform and other economic, you know, basic economic things. But I mean, if you look at it, Seth, Jimmy Carter had at least two years of Democratic majorities in both House and Senate. Bill Clinton did, Barack Obama did, Joe Biden did. Um, and we didn't pass fundamental labor law reform in any of those times. 
Right. And there were, and, and yeah, this actually, I have another question about this, but I was going to, I was going to say, and there were real efforts. There was an effort in 1977, 78. There was yes. an effort with the Employee Free Choice Act. You yeah. know, the, the PRO Act is not new. The PRO Act has been, and every time it's failed. Although the PRO Act is more comprehensive than any of the others. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. you know, but the Employee Free Choice Act was my life. I, You know, I wasn't a legislative staff, but I basically, you know, part of my year, 11 years at the AFL-CIO, I don't know, three, three or four years of it was creating and running the Voice at Work campaign to basically try to turn the right to organize and bargain into a human rights issue. And we crafted the Employee Free Choice Act and, you know, whatever. But um, I'll tell you what I think. Um, I don't have confidence that we're going to get fundamental labor law reform out of a lovely conversation between you know, representatives and senators in the the halls of Congress. I think, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I believe that. And we're not going to have the 1930s again, exactly. But the core aspect of it, that before 1935, you know, a lot of the famous stuff happened after the sit-down strike in Flint in 36 and so on and so forth. But the CIO wasn't the Congress of Industrial Organizations. It was the Committee on Industrial Organizing of the AFL. Right. There was a lot of tension and labor movement over that. But it was there and people were organizing on scale, uh, on a scale that hadn't happened. And things were kind of out of control. And the, the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act that passed in 1935, it wasn't some like, oh, FDR was such a saint or he had such a great idea or, or Senator Wagner. The, you know, the bosses, the employers were like, whoa, this is out of control. We need some way to funnel this. And it was sort of a compromise. So you know whether we can win a, a first contract at Starbucks like you were talking about a few minutes ago or not, I don't know. But at least we have to have a kind of grapes boycott kind of moment here of consciousness yeah. raising of politicians, the media, the polity at large, that, whoa, we're not going to have economic justice. We're never going to rebuild the middle class. We're not going to tackle wealth and income and inequality unless we change this situation. So I think that I'm kind of hopeful that we can get to uh, real labor law reform, hopefully the PRO Act. Uh, can you imagine maybe even the PRO Act with, you know, majority sign up? <laughs> that's the one thing that's not in it, you know. Um, but in any event, I think it's probably going to take workers organizing. And it's this kind of dynamic, right? True organizing to scale won't happen until there's labor law reform. But what I'm saying is, I don't think we get to labor law reform until there's workers are organizing and it's a little bit chaotic and it's and and nobody's really in charge and you know what the truth is like to stick with the starbucks example yes they're part of workers united which is amazing yes workers united rolls up to seiu but actually those almost 300 stores and soon it will pass 300 stores those workers have largely self-organized that's right no and no no that's amazing. exactly right it's that's amazing. why for me, the Starbucks organizing campaign is the most important organizing campaign of our time because 
you know, they started organizing three stores, actually one store and then three stores in Buffalo, New York. And it was just to organize those stores. There was sort of, there was interest, there were people, there were maybe some salts who I'm not going to point any fingers, but there maybe were some salts involved. And they were going to try and see what they could do. And there was an explosion across the country. The campaign has only been going on for, I don't remember exactly how long, 16, 18 months. Yeah. And there are 300 stores. Now there's 9,000 Starbucks stores, but you know, there's plenty more time for them to organize. So it, it really has been a worker led effort. They are feeding on one another. They're doing it through social media and other means. Uh, so worker organizers are traveling around, talking with one another, helping each other to organize, train each other. There are outside groups that are helping to train them. The SEIU and Workers United, both very, very supportive. They, they happen to have one of the truly great professional organizers in the country who's playing a leadership role there. But you're exactly right. Workers are doing it. And I'm with you. There's got to be dozens of those kinds of things in order to create the kind of disruption and communicate effectively that, you know, the working class is not willing to stay where they are. They're not willing to continue being treated the way they're treated. They're not willing to work in undemocratic workplaces anymore. They want to have a say in their futures. All right, I'm going to close it out with this, the big question, because you use the word hopeful, and I want to pick up on that. So you and I have both been doing this for a very, very, very long time, right? You're a little older than I am. You don't look older than I am, but you you are older, a little bit older than I am, but we're about the same age, came out of college at the same time. We both started our careers in the labor movement. After all these years, I am still an optimist about worker power, about unions, about the prospect for worker fairness, worker justice, economic justice in our society. I don't, I'm not saying we're there. I'm not saying we're close, but I think the fight continues and I think that we can get there. We're in, a, we're in a perennial state of arriving at a better place in our society. And I think we've seen that. There have been a lot of steps back. Certainly worker power is not where it needs to be, anywhere near where it needs to be. But I think we've seen a lot of progress, even if we're not seeing it in the union density numbers. So I consider myself to be an optimist. Are you optimistic about the future of workers, the future of worker power, the future of democracy in the workplace and in our society? We're, you know, you've, you've had a long enough and diverse enough set of experiences that I, I, I think it's going to be important to people to get a sense of what you see for the future. Well, so I have two different answers. The first one is, as an organizer, I sort of don't believe in optimism and pessimism, you know, because I think, like, I'm never giving up the fight, right? And the question is always um, ma making the right decisions, you know, being strategic. Um, but then I have to admit I'm an optimist. And um, one thing is that history is not a steady incremental march anywhere. It's not steady incremental progress. It's disjunctive. Crises happen, unexpected things happen. And then it's like an earthquake, you know, the, the faults slip and the earth moves and it's powerful. And I think, you know, like nobody, like LGBTQ rights, nobody, you know, right. could have seen the, the things move in the, in the way they did there. Um, and so I, I see conditions right now uh, for workers to increase their voice and power in this society like have never existed in my adult lifetime. And yeah, like I'm proud that in the early 80s, 
we were able to win a bunch of NLRB elections and help some nursing home workers build some power and hospital workers and stuff. But, you know, really, this is, you know, really the, 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 the situation for workers has just gotten worse and worse. Income and wealth inequality have gotten worse and worse. The erosion of, and we were part of some of these direct fights, right? The erosion of workers' freedom to form unions and bargain collectively has been, it hasn't died by a thousand cuts, but it's been weakened by a thousand cuts by, you know, federal courts, state courts, administrative agencies and whatnot. And I just think it's gotten to the point where young workers and the pandemic is part of it and the Great Recession was part of it. They feel like we're, we've been screwed. Nobody's looking out for us. We're going to have to build our own future. And they're going to, you know, they're taking matters into their own hands. And, you know, Gen Z is more pro-union than any generation. The whole country is more pro-union than it has been. Um, and I think that... Uh, there's a real opportunity right now to uh, take a moment of crisis for our country and turn it into a renaissance of worker power. And the only hope for our democracy for taking on racism, for tackling climate change is that working folks have a lot more voice and power in politics, but basically it starts in their own workplace, in their own industry. So that's what, exactly. that's what's got to happen. I'm with you completely. All right. For people who want to keep track of you, well, let me just ask very simply, what, what are you going to do next? What's next for you? You're at the Center for American Progress now. Yes. I hear some rumors kicking around about possibilities for you and returning to public service. I'm not going to float them here, but you can if you want to. What What's next? Where are you going next? Well, so right now, so I'm at the Center for American Progress, and that's fantastic. It's a great uh, kind of home base for me in D.C., and I'm working with them on especially implementation of the Investing in America um, agenda, if you want to call it that. What we passed, you know, really in the in the 117th Congress with the with the Infrastructure Bill and the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, that's the biggest investment in America in one grouping since the 60s, really, and and it's so, um, you know, that, you know, I, I'm very involved in that. But also, mostly what I'm doing in addition to that is working with uh, organizations, with, with unions, with um, nonprofits on um, climate change, clean energy, and workers' rights, and where these things intersect. So whether there's a chance that I'll go back directly into government service, uh, or, you know, politics, but I'm not narrowly thinking about that right at this moment. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to assess what I think, you know, it's almost like what we were talking about before. What's your best contribution? And Seth, I am serious that this may be a moment for the labor movement or for the not yet existing labor movement, you know, what's there now, but also what needs to be born that it might just be most important for me to help do that, you know, help that happen, not as a, a congressperson or a government official, but, you know, as, as part of the movement again. So I'm kind of working on various efforts along those lines, having a lot of uh, amazing discussions with people and pitching a little bit, and we'll see where it leads. But um, I'm, I'm, I just couldn't be more excited about this moment and about, uh, the, the need 
you know, like, for example, we must change everything about the way we, our buildings, our land use, our, our manufacturing processes, um, the, our transportation. But I really think it can only happen with a revived labor movement, you know, and a growing labor movement. And so that's just an amazing, if that's true, oh my gosh, do we have work to do? So I'm we all do. in for the work. I'm all in for the work. And, and I'm, I'm all in for you playing a leadership role in it. Andy Levin, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely terrific. I knew this would be a great conversation. Um, we have, I'm hoping we have 30 more years to talk about this together. So <laughs> Me too, Seth. Appreciate I it. Enjoyed Good all of them. Take care. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. That's my interview with uh, Andy Levin. You know, we've got a lot more of these terrific interviews and blogcasts uh, coming up on the Power at Work blog and lots of other terrific content. Uh, why not subscribe to the Power at Work blog? Go to the website right now, poweratwork.us, and just hit the button, give us your email address, and we'll keep you updated about what's coming what we've most recently posted on the blog. Every week, you'll get a feature that we call the weekly download, which is a collection of a couple of dozen very important pieces from around the internet, articles, interviews, uh, podcasts, uh, academic studies, all different kinds of stuff. You can get that from us directly in your inbox, uh, but also keep an eye on the Power at Work uh, blog so you can keep informed of these important issues about worker power. So we've got another uh, one coming up uh, next week. We're going to try and get these out every Tuesday. So, uh, so subscribe so you can find out about this information and keep an eye on the Power at Work blog. Thanks very much. We'll see you on the blog soon.